piece of me that lived in the working class neighborhoods of my hometown was an essential and permanent part of who I was. No one you have been and no place you have gone ever leaves you. The new parts of you simply jump in the car and go along for the rest of the ride. The success of your journey and your destination all depend on who's driving. I'd seen other great musicians lose their way and watch their music and art become anemic, rootless, displaced when they seemed to lose touch with who they were. My music would be a music of identity, a search for meaning and the future. Welcome, everybody. It is that time of the day or evening, whenever it is you've decided to thankfully join us. My name is Christian Overfield. And I am Martha Guzman, and we are the hosts of the Rockstar Autobiography Podcast. Join us every two weeks as we review autobiographies by the greatest and most famous musicians in history. This is certainly uh, a big one. One of them, the, the works that I just read were from none other than Bruce Springsteen, or as some of his fans call him, El Jefe, which actually is not correct. They call him the boss. <laughs> there is no one above. There is just the boss. And we read his book, Born to Run, which came out about five or six years ago. Um, he's super famous, as you know, even if you're not a big fan of Bruce Springsteen, you know who he is and you know his name, as do we. And it is his book that we read. Um, Martha, I don't know about you, but I, I, my library didn't, I've given up on the library because Martha knows I've thrown in the town for useless to me. So I had to buy his book and I threw in the towel and I got the paperback because I needed it quickly. Oh my. Do you have the paperback? I do not. I have the hardcover from the library from the library. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, um, it's a time where I, I like to check in with Martha. I always like learning her experience with Ben. And I think actually, Martha, it's not it's kind of essential because it kind of frames uh, our opinions, you know, we, we come with our history with these people for better or worse, however much they meant to us, little or not. And that gives context to, to the opinions that we have, you know, yes. we're, we're not perfect. We're just, I'm a collection of experiences and musical likes and dislikes. And I read a lot and whatever my background is that forms therefore my opinion. And so part of that I think is offering uh, our experience with these artists prior to getting to their autobiographies. So I do think it's essential. And I'm now asking you, Martha. Yes. What is, how intimate are you with Bruce? <laughs> Not that intimate, I will say. Uh, I, I think like many other people, I know, of course, how can you not know who Bruce Springsteen is, right? I mean, we all know who the man is. We all know some of his music, obviously the, the bigger hits, the songs that we, that, made it to the billboard charts and, and all of that. And so that's, that was really the extent of my knowledge uh, going into this book. Uh, just basically, obviously knowing who he is, knowing 
Born in the USA, Dancing in the Dark, you know, some, you know, those, those songs, which I think most people, even if they're not fans of his music or of him, know. Um, I can't say that I've ever really given his music uh, a real listen other than, again, those, those songs. So I didn't really know a whole lot about him. I mean, I knew he was from New Jersey. I mean, there's, you know, certain things that I knew about him, but I I learned a lot about him uh, reading this book. And uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of the extent of my knowledge and my relationship with Bruce Springsteen and his music. Yes. Mine is um, not much deeper than that. I do remember my mother informing me of who Bruce Springsteen was. Before, I was right before... Born in the USA came out and she like educated me that, you know, people call him the boss, you know, I think my mom kind of had a crush on him and responded to his, his masculine vibe that he yes. had going on. And she seemed to be a fan without even owning. I actually, I think she did own an album or two, but um, even then I think she introduced me to the super famous, you can't, you can't escape the, the slogan of Bruce Springsteen, which goes like this. And it's a reason some people don't like Bruce Springsteen is because his fans inevitably say to you, if you don't love Bruce Springsteen, um, in all capital letters, they say, but have you seen him live? Okay. Uh, I, I don't know if you've encountered that prior to this book, but it's a thing. No. I mean, uh, you'd never heard that before. No. Wow. It's never. A, oh, no kidding. Yes, never. Wow. So Bruce Springsteen is notorious for that. His fans were always, always, and it's happened to me. It has happened to me in, re, in real life. When I express that, you know, I don't worship Bruce Springsteen, they say, well, have you seen him live? Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a thing. In fact, after I read this book, because I am who I am, I Googled, um, I, to politely put it all, I searched out people who don't like Bruce Springsteen. Yes. And there are lists of reasons why people don't like Bruce Springsteen. Oh, how funny. Across the board, everybody lists as one of those things is his fans inevitably and insufferably say to you, but have you seen him live? Like it's this cataclysmic, like life-changing, cathartic experience that is religious-like in its scope. Oh, interesting. You know, I've never heard that, but maybe because I, I really don't know a lot of people who are big fans of his so perhaps that's the reason that i haven't that i've never come across anyone anyone saying that it is his thing without even having seen him live it, he is apparently notoriously famous for always giving 110 percent at every single show oh wow like like it's do or die you know the fate of the planet is at stake and only bruce springsteen and the e street band can save humanity and they, that's how they perform Apparently, I've never seen Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, but they are notorious for that. So much so that um, something else I know about Bruce Springsteen, they play kind of into how I read his book, is I was, for a period of my life, I was a big Howard Stern fan and Artie Lang was on the show. Mm -hmm. And Artie Lang went through a whole bunch of drug problems. It's been his whole life. And anyway, after one of Bruce Springsteen's concerts, which I think they're like four hours long, Martha. Right. He says that in the book. Right. They're about three hours long. That's what They're he says. so long, yes. as you and I discover, they have intermissions, which yeah. is to me totally not rock and roll. But that's anyway, I'll save that for later. But at the end of one of these shows, he he sat down with Artie Lang and talked to him about Artie's problems, because Artie's also from New Jersey. 
And Artie Lang, who's a big, huge Bruce Springsteen fan, came away thinking, what an amazing, wonderful man this is, that he's just spent 5,000 calories on stage, spending four hours of his life, giving 110%. And immediately after the show's over, he's taking the time to talk to me about my demons and problems and trying to help me. And that, you know, that made an impression because I'm such a huge Artie Lang fan. And it seemed like, wow, that's, there's, you can't bring cynicism to that. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. I also had the experience of having lunch next to Bruce Springsteen once. Okay. In Santa Monica, there was a place called the Broadway Deli before the promenade changed completely. And one day I was walking by and I saw Bruce Springsteen having lunch inside. And I said, I'm going to go have lunch next to Bruce Springsteen. And so I did that. Why wouldn't you? I mean, if you could. So I sat, I ordered, you know, and I wound up sitting at a table next to him. And they had just gotten married, his new wife. So I had lunch next to him, which makes me very special. And I have to, so that's about it. And, and, but I do want to say, like you, Martha, when I came to the album Born in the USA, you and I grew up, that album was a landmark moment of the 80s. Oh my gosh, it was everywhere. That song, that album, the, the cover of that album with the jeans and the flag and all of that. Yes, yes. It was everywhere. And it was unique to the 80s in the way that things don't happen like that anymore in this day and age. No, they don't. Where the entire cosmos takes note of something and gets on board. And Correct. It just doesn't happen anymore. I kind of miss that in a way. I, t- I kind of, I totally, yeah. totally miss that. It's such a different time now. It's such a different it's time. It's such a different time. And everybody in the world, when that song came out, it was a gigantic tectonic plate shifting <laughs> moment. Yes. And, you know, I mean, not that it should or shouldn't have been. It just was. It arrived right. that way. And only the way that the 80s could, could offer and I had, when that came out, I remember th- I was under the impression that Bruce Springsteen had sort of been around forever, but I didn't realize until I read the book that in a, in a, in a sense that that album made him. Correct. Uh, that was new information for me. But other than that, you know, that's really the extent of my, my Bruce Springsteen um, knowledge. And I'd met a you know, ton of people who just swear by the guy, you know? That's interesting. I don't believe I've ever met anyone who... Uh who was a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I honestly, I'm trying to think of anyone that I might know or might've known. And I can't think of anyone. I can think of a lot of other people who I know are, who have big, you know, who are fans, who they're fans of. Yes. But Bruce Springsteen does not, is not one of those people. So I met a couple and they are hardcore and I can respect as you and I are hardcore music fans You know, the reason I just love Sebastian Bach's passion for Kiss is even though I don't care anything about Kiss, I relate to the passion. Absolutely. So when I meet these people, again, I'm like, well, you know, I I respect your passion. I just don't get it. But it's a tribe. It's kind of like great, great, you know, deadheads that went to Grateful Dead. I was about to say, it's like the Grateful Dead. Yes. So that's it. That's it. But I did, I did have one impression of Bruce Springsteen and a bot brought to the book that was roundly and soundly confirmed, which is the guy is incredibly serious and earnest. Um, and so with that, I kind of want to dig into the book and see what you thought. We've read the book, which was 500, no, uh, yes, 500 pages approximately. What was your thought? What was your thought of this big, big tome? 
<laughs> oh my gosh, Christian. This is going to be an interesting episode. I'm, I, I'm already um, I'm thinking about that. I, I was thinking that as soon as I saw your notes because I loved it. Oh, wow. Okay. I loved this book. I No kidding. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Wow. And, um, That's exciting. <laughs> and, you know, because again, I did not have any real pre... I, I know, I should correct that. I had some preconceived notions going into this book about who Bruce was. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, um, they were they were confirmed. But I was surprised to learn about the man. And I was surprised to learn certain things about him, um, which I, I found incredibly... I mean, I was just affected by it in, in some ways, in a personal way. Um, I absolutely love this book, Christian. Wow. And interestingly, you know, because I am not, I am not necessarily a Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, I, I didn't think, I, I honestly, I came, when I, we started, when I started reading it, I honestly thought that it was going to be the opposite. I thought that I was probably going to have to just really struggle through it. But it was it was not the case. I really just got into it, um, and I think that the thing that that I, that really uh, made me like it as much as I did was because I felt that this was a book where, for better or worse, we got to know the person. We really got in his head. He really allowed us to get in his head and allowed us to. To really see him, um, again, for better or worse, I mean, he's he's not, you know, he's honest about who he is as a person. He refers to himself often as a control freak, uh, you know, and, and all of these different things. But there was something about that and the fact that he was so forthright in talking about who he, who he is, you know, and talking about his demons and talking about the good and the bad and all of it. And I don't know. I think it was also refreshing to not to hear more about who he was as a person and what drove him and to not it be consumed by sex, drugs and all of that stuff that we continuously read about in these books. So I think it was because of that that I also felt that there was uh, you know, the last time when we talked about Slash's book, you know, one of the things that I said that I really appreciated about it was the fact that I felt as though he was just telling us his story. You know, I felt that it was um, him giving us who he was and doing so in a way that was very personal. Uh, and so that was, you know, it had an effect, right? And it And it worked. And I felt similarly about Bruce's book. I felt that I honestly felt like he would, and maybe because he is, you know, uh, older and, 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 and there's a lot of experience there now, but in some ways I felt like it was, um, I was having a conversation or someone was having a conversation with me, um, who'd really lived life and who really knew who he was and who sprinkled a little bit of advice throughout. And, you know, I've always said that I've, I've, 
even as a young person, when I was much younger, I always preferred the company of older people. I always found myself gravitating to older people and listening to their stories and hearing about their lives. I always preferred that to hanging out with, with younger kids. And so I felt similarly reading this book. I felt as though I was, I was talking to, you know, someone with, again, with all this experience in life, telling me about who they were and all their trials and tribulations. And I really enjoyed it. That doesn't go without saying that there were moments where I felt that it was, um, you know, uh, where he came across as being a bit full of himself and those sorts of things. But I was able to excuse that because he himself talks about that too, you know, where he, to some degree, I think is cognizant of the fact that he is like that as well. Um, so there were elements of it that I, for me, just worked and I enjoyed it. I thought that the writing was also very good. I mean, it had its moments where I just kind of rolled my eyes and I thought, oh my God, you know, where things I thought were, were pushed a little too much. But overall, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I absolutely loved it. Wow. Okay. This is the first time you and I have ever, I think, diverged. Uh, so, and I'm excited about that, you know? Yes. So this book, one of the things I left out about what I'm bringing to Bruce Springsteen, as I, and Martha knows this because I've teased her. I don't know how it came up. He released a book or participated in a book with uh, President Barack Obama. Okay. Podcast. No, 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 no. Was it a podcast? Well, they, it was a podcast and then they, they released a book. They released Correct. a book. And yes. the book is just a transcription of this conversation with President Barack Obama. Correct. And they're just smiling and laughing and leaning on one another on the cover. And I was just struck dumb by the huge, to me, this is my impression and reaction when I saw that book. Yes. The hubris, the ego of his willingness to participate in that project to suggest that his just conversation is worth printing. It, that made an impression on me, not in a positive way. And this book roundly confirmed that for me. To my book, you have the hardcover, so I don't know if it has what mine has, which is all the praise, you know, the blurbs. My book has no less than 27 blurbs of praise. Oh, no, the book I have doesn't. Every conceivable institution that publishes any news or any publications at all there is a blurb here stating essentially that this book is the greatest book ever written, that the English language, in fact, never had any value until Bruce Springsteen came along to use it, <laughs> that it's a masterwork, you know, that all three godfathers can't compare to one paragraph of this book. And again, I was like, you know what, I, if I were Bruce Springsteen, I would... I'd, I'd say, please don't use all 27. It's just over the top. Use one. If, it, if you have to use any. And there are like five more in the back. Astonishing. Astounding. A landmark. It's just so loaded with seriousness and heaviness. And my reaction, Martha, as I was reading, I'm like, what is this feeling I'm having? What is this familiar tone? And I'm going to say something, Martha, only you would get. Yes. But it's a bold statement. You ready? Okay. Okay. But only you'll get it. Okay. To me, when I got to page, I think that I have it in my notes somewhere. I forget where, like four, three eighty nine or something. To me, he out Garfunkled Garfunkel. <laughs> oh my gosh! Really, Christian? I thought this was the most bloviated 
egotistical, narcissistic, navel-gazing ego trip that I, I was... The fumes, the fumes. I, I once spilled gasoline accidentally uh, all over my back trunk, okay? And it, I had clothes in the back as well. And those fumes were noxious. They were, they actually watered my eyes. Like I couldn't get near the, I had to wash the clothes 50 times before I ever got the gasoline odor out. But I'll never forget the vapor like fumes. That's what this book like was for me. Oh my gosh. It oh my really, I was laughing hysterically by the end, not for reasons that he intended, because I just couldn't believe a human being could take himself so seriously. And it really, to me, it it's I, I I don't know how else to put it, but he's in that like Sean Penn category of it's my job to save the planet. You know how you know what's going on in the news today. Correct. Sean Penn flew out there like this actor can save us all from whatever's going on in the world. Right. If it's not Hurricane Katrina where Sean Penn is, then it's this calamity where Sean Penn jumps in. And Bruce Springsteen, to me, it let us in that he actually believes himself to be like that. And there is, I mean, I don't want to start jumping out of order completely. I'm going to refrain from doing that today. But to me, is who Bruce Springsteen communicated himself to be to me by the end. I was, I was like just sailing on a cloud of his ego by the end. Surf in the sky. Well, he certainly, he certainly, you know, like I said, I mean, I definitely saw that as well, but it didn't affect my, my, my still really loving this book. I felt that, I don't know. I just really enjoyed the writing. Um, and I felt that it was, it was thoughtful. And, and listen, there are some moments where it becomes too much. I totally see that. I totally agree. But there was something about it that just really grabbed me and it captivated me. And it really, in spite of the fact that it was as long as it was, I didn't feel it in the sense that I was looking forward to continuing to read. Okay, I relate to that because I actually felt the same. Um, But I think it happened about page 175 or something. I clicked in with the voice and then I, I, I sailed along with it. But there was something, I, I'm, you, I, I don't know if you noted this, but it, this book is very different than the others that we've read. And that this actually was a defect for me. He doesn't tell you stories of his life. He, he lets you in on his sort of philosophical reactions and thoughts about his life. But it's not a, a book that, that contains stories. And a, a lot of those philosophical musings were, were really well written. You know, Correct. And obviously, like Morrissey, in a sense, even though you and I had our issues with Morrissey's book, you got the sense the guy certainly spent time on the writing. Yes. Yes. I got that from Bruce. You, you know, I'm spending time sincerely trying to, to, to do to give you a written product that is writerly. And Correct. It's Correct. all there. It's rich in that regard. Yes. Um. And you know what, Christian? I'm glad that you brought up. I'm so glad that you brought up uh, the Morrissey book as well, because I will tell you that uh, at the beginning of the book, I felt I kept I kept comparing it to Morrissey's book as well. 
you know, the beginning of the book, when he talks about his childhood, his upbringing, I felt as though I was reading it off of page off of Morrissey's autobiography. It was very similar. It was very lyrical. lyrical. It was poetic. There was something about it that grabbed me from the get-go. And I was in. I was in from the first page to the very end. I was not in. I was, um, took me, like I said, a, a long while, but he definitely puts you in his mind. You are in oh, his mind. Absolutely. And I loved that. Well, I love that he puts you in his mind and he's definitely not holding back. I don't think he, to me, is quite revealing that he doesn't realize that, that he's really revealing contours that are, that are uh, to me, fascinating to say the least. But that's why, that's why I loved it. That's why I loved it because he puts you in his mind. And like I said, you know, there are those instances where, yes, his ego is, woo, it is showing through. Yes. It's like eating a hundred garlic cloves. But you know what? But I appreciated that. I appreciated that. It's sincere. That's my point. And that's the thing. I always, I always, always say this. And people that spend a lot of time with me on a regular basis know this about me. I always say that when people are humble and when people um, express a lot of humility, oftentimes I read it as fake. And I read that as equally as pretentious as when someone boasts about themselves. And so, so I always prefer if, for instance, if someone says, oh, I don't sing well, but they really do. And they know it and everyone else around them knows it, but they don't, but they're like, oh, it's to me, that's just as awful, if not worse, if than someone saying, you know what? I am great. I am amazing. I prefer that over false humility any day, you know? And so to me, I don't care what someone is like, as long as I am getting the real person, I can decide whether I like them or not, but that's irrelevant. What I am most concerned about is how honest someone is being. And when I am reading a book, and especially when I am reading a memoir, an autobiography, I want to know who the real person is. Regardless of whether I come away liking them or not, that's irrelevant. And I loved that. I love that we got in his head. I love that he let it all out. And sometimes it wasn't complimentary to himself. And I don't think that he necessarily wanted to keep that away from us. I think he wanted to show us all of it. So that's why I loved it so much. Well, I can agree with you in the sense that even though I'm having an opinion about the person I'm reading, yes, the way in which he told it, I, I did lock into, and I did look forward to reading it as, as again, as I got into a certain page, I locked into his mind and what he was doing, and I looked forward to reading more, even though I was sort of just uh, personally, you know, shocked by some, some of the things that he was saying and wanting me to, to, to subscribe to. But the honesty is there. Um, you, do, you certainly get a sense of him and who he is, for yes. sure, for sure. And I wasn't surprised by that, again, because of the impression that the persona he's created seems to be genuinely kind of who he is. It doesn't seem to be far off the mark. It's, but that, that became its own thing. And so to, to go into the book itself, as I was reading Martha, I remember thinking, we're going to have a hard time talking about this. There aren't any <laughs> I stories. felt similarly, Christian. I it's, felt similarly. It's, it's impressionistic. And yes. there's, if it's a, there's no dialogue, if you can put it that way. <laughs> Correct. And in fact, I reduced it. The, the, the entire 500 pages only has 200 like 
stories, contained stories. And I respond, I, I like those. I was like, finally, you gave me a story. Right. The two stories he gives is he's he's got no cash, he's totally broke. And I'm I'm just gonna, even though it's out of order, these are the only two stories he gives you in 500 pages. Yes. Story where he's he needs to go across, I guess, one of the New York and New Jersey bridges. Yes. And he doesn't have, I don't know if it's a, a dollar, dollar. Two, a dollar. It's a dollar. He doesn't have, he's dead broke and they don't take pennies or something like that. And that's all Correct. he has. And I, it's a great story. Martha, it's the only story. It's where <laughs> I can, finally, I can relate to a person because he tells the story he's dead broke and he's going to the toll booth. And the woman who runs it is just so strict and unmet, boring and, and obstinate. And he's like pleading with her. I've got 99 pennies. This all I, I think he says, no, I've got 100 pennies. But I guess their policy is not to take pennies. Correct. But he, he begs and pleads. And she's like, fine, give me your pennies. And she still has, the, of course, being who she is, we'd call her a Karen today, I guess. She counts out the pennies and he's got only 99. Correct. And as the reader... Because one of them is Canadian. It's a Canadian penny. Oh, right. <laughs> so as the reader, finally, I'm like, oh, this story just came to life because I'm in a story now. Well, it really comes to life when he has to look for the other penny. Because <laughs> the best part of the story is I, I, he caught me surprised because I thought for sure, well, she's going to let him through, even though he's only got 99. Nope, not this woman. She's like, you cannot go through. And he's begging. He's like, I literally don't have gas money to even turn around and go ask somebody for another penny. She's like, tough, tough taco. And he scours his car for the final penny. Yes. And I mean, that's he, that's a story that he gives us. And the only single other story he gives is the Disneyland story with Steve Van Sant. Oh, my gosh, that story. Because it's the only one in the book, Martha. No, that story was hysterical. It was because... I, I don't know if it's because I was desperate for a story. No, it was funny. It was a funny story. It was a funny story, but it's also the that speaks to what the book is like. You're in his mind, and it's not a collection of stories in the more traditional sense. No, it's not. He does give some stories, but it's always within the context of what was happening in his head. It's always within the context of, of um, you know, and this is what I was thinking, and this is what I was feeling when this happened. Yes. Uh, yes, that's that's. And so I felt similarly, Christian. Um, it's interesting that you felt the same way too, because after I closed the book, I thought, holy smokes, how are we going to talk about this book? Yes. How are we going to talk about this book? Because there isn't much, um, you know, there there isn't, uh, it's it's not a narrative in, in the traditional sense. You know, there's not, I mean, he's narrating, obviously, the, the his life and he's telling you, but there isn't sort of the story storytelling that that goes along with that kind of narrative it's it's not like that it's not linear either um because he kind of jumps back and forth again depending on where he is in his head you know at one point you know he'll he'll be talking about one thing that he you've already read about that happened earlier in the book but he's at some point in his head where he's remembering or thinking about something similar and so then he goes back and so it's not it's not linear. It's not a true storytelling type book. So it, it yeah, it was, it, it wasn't uh, like the books we've read. It really wasn't. The only, so since we tease, I feel like we should explain the second story real quick. Cause it's the only one else. Correct. Is he goes with Steve, Stevie Van Sant to Disneyland. He's looking forward to it. Apparently he's been 
like a little kid just excited to go to on um, Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> Space Mountain, like all these rides. <laughs> and I really enjoyed the story for multiple reasons because they go during the 80s. Correct. And for, I first of all, I don't know, I have my own impressions of Steve Stevie Van Sant, and I just cannot stand that the, the, the his attire and the ridiculous bandana he wears everywhere he goes. So to find out that that bandana became central to the story was so funny to me. Right. And also, I forgot, and it, it brought it brought back the '80s a little bit. So they go to Disneyland, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Van Sant, and it's after Born in the USA. So I think they're just it's the height of Bruce's just superpowers. Yes. And I forgot that. Maybe some of our, I don't know if we have young listeners. I think they're all our age. But during the 80s, I forgot that like gang warfare in LA was a real thing. Like even people who live in the suburbs had been educated that the Crips and the Bloods were real. Right. Even, even like the most suburban moms were like, I'm not going to send my child to school wearing red or blue because right. I don't want them being associated with the Crips and the Bloods. And No, it was a real thing. It was a real thing. Right. Whether yes. or not it's real, whether or not, you know, drugs, here your, here's your brain on drugs, all that stuff we were fed, you know. And so they go to Disneyland and the employee right away takes a look at it. And I guess, of course, the Crips and the Bloods also wore the bandanas. That's right. how, the, how they advertise yeah. their... Red or blue bandanas. Correct. Right. And so C.D. Van Sant, of course, wearing that ridiculous bandana walks in and the right away. And I think Bruce Springsteen's got that ridiculous red ones wearing. He said he's wearing his too, correct? And they say, we can't let you in with that headgear because, I mean, hello, you know, gang warfare and all, you know, all that. And I also, I got the impression the employee who worked there had no idea who Bruce Springsteen was. He's just like, I can't let you in with this <laughs> You know what? It's funny you say that, Christian, because it sort of felt that way, right? Like he had no clue who these people were. <laughs> and I just love the story because it's a story. And then Stevie Van Sant, who, who I know to be super political, of course, there's a total fit. I'm not taking off my, my bandana. You can't. It's like asking the edge to remove his beanie. You just don't ask a man to take off his bandana, right? Right, right. And I just love that they wouldn't do it. They're not going to capitulate to the man, represented, of course, by Disneyland. And then, <laughs> by the mouse. Right. The and mouse. then they go to Knott's Berry Farm, which I love because it's the poor man's Disneyland, although I love Knott's Berry Farm. And the same thing happens in Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> the employees say, you can't come in. You're wearing these headbands. And right. to me, it was like, it was so finally, that's it. In the whole book, 500 pages, he gives you those two stories. The rest is you are wearing a virtual reality headset of the man's thinking and thoughts. Which I loved. Which, <laughs> Which I, I loved. loved. <laughs> well, okay. So his childhood, I don't know about you, Martha, his childhood, it didn't work. I, I just couldn't get too involved in it. It went, it was little Angela Ashes-esque. It was... Really? I, I appreciated that he's trying, trying, quote unquote, to write, but it didn't, I don't know. I just, it didn't come to life for me forever. And I think it's because it doesn't let you in on the details. And what I mean by the details is to bring it back to Stephen Van Sant, right? He lets us know um, at some point in the book that his relationship with Stephen Van Sant, I guess, sours. And Steve, Steve, he leaves the band sort of in the midst of Bruce's super fame at, at the born in the USA years. And he tells you about this falling out. But here's my reading experience, Martha. You're telling me about this falling out with a man. You haven't told me any stories at all about your relationship with this person. Oh, I, had, I had no idea who Stevie who is it? It is Stevie, right? Stevie? Yeah. Uh-huh. 
little Stevie? I had no, you haven't told me about this relationship. You haven't let me in on any details and any, there's no way in which I've become invested in the barnacles of, uh, of this relationship. I don't know anything about Stephen Van Sant. There isn't a single quote in the book about this person. All you did is, is sort of from a distance tell me that he was a fellow kindred spirit and that he was a great guitar player, I guess. But suddenly at the end, you tell me, you know, now my friendship with this man has come to pieces. And, and it's like, okay, well, I believe you because you're telling me, but it means nothing to me because you haven't told me anything about it. I'm just in your head. You're failing. You know what? It's like I used to teach my students. You know, I don't know what's in your mind or what has happened. It is your responsibility to tell me. The reader doesn't know. And if you're not going to let me in on these anecdotes and stories or these relationships and the warts and the pimples, I can't get emotionally connected. So when you try to, at the end, tell me that this was a big deal, all I can do is objectively take your word for it. But I'm not experiencing it at all because I don't know what it was even like. You never told me. And that was the whole book to me, Martha. Yes. No, I agree with you on that. I think that for the a big port. I mean, yes, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that he he tells us he's constantly in his head, uh, but he doesn't always necessarily give us details about some of the relationships that were impactful to him. Um, and yeah, like in that instance, you're right. I mean, he he talks about, you know, the parting of the ways because, you know, he wants to, uh, Stevie wants to pursue his own thing and whatnot, but he doesn't really give you the the lead up to that. You know, you, you it's all of a sudden it's, it's done and he wants to leave. But I think that was part of the reason that when he did talk about his childhood, I did get invested in it because I, I could see that relation, you know, he talks, so his upbringing, he's Irish and an Italian, and that was his upbringing Catholic. Um, and he talks about how close his relationship was with his grandmother. Um, and even though he, he doesn't really, I mean, he gives us some details, um, in terms of, you know, just the fact that he was sort of like the prince, you know, he was the first grandson and he was the first grandchild and he was a boy. And, you know, that was just such a big deal. And, his grandmother, uh, his grandparents, his paternal grandparents had lost a child. And so when he was born, it's, it was almost as though his grandmother latched onto him to replace the aunt that had died as a young child. And so he talks about all of that and just everything that he shared, you know, the details that he gave about his upbringing and how poor they were, but yet they were such a close-knit family and in the neighborhood that he grew up in and all of that. It gave me a feel for what his family life had been like. And in that regard, I also felt it was very similar to what Morrissey shared with us in his autobiography. You know, sort of this close-knit, tight family and this whole family structure that was all sort of, they all kind of lived near each other. Uh, so when his grandmother dies, you know, I felt that when he talks about how he's essentially wailing and, that, and he just can't handle it and he's just, he feels like his life has fallen apart. All of those things, I I could feel it. I I I, I felt like I get it, you know, I, I understand this. And so, because I think he'd given, um, he'd painted a picture without necessarily giving us a lot of details and a lot of those stories. For me, the the picture that he painted in those early pages about his childhood, that was sufficient for me to grasp sort of the depth of his pain when she passed away. So in that sense, I was able to to identify. And I think also, you know, I think when you yourself come from a, a close-knit family like that, that I think that there were some similarities in that that I was able to relate to. And so I, I, I didn't feel that I needed a whole lot 
in order for me to capture the essence of what he was saying. But no, I think that later on, as the the story moves on and he as he continues, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think that he he's so stuck in trying to tell you everything he's feeling. I love it when men who present themselves as the way I think Bruce Springsteen presents himself, you know, without knowing anything about him, sort of like this strong masculine figure. But then as you read this book, you realize that there's a, a frailty there. There is a sensitivity there. And so I think that's what got me into the book. I think as I started reading it, I was like, wait a minute, this, the way he is presenting himself and the things that he's saying and the things that he's writing about don't necessarily match up with the persona that I have known on TV, you know, the way that he comes across. And so I think that it was, it was such a, a, a stark difference for me in terms of what he's really like inside his head that I think that's what grabbed me. And again, I think it's that bias of me always kind of like, I just, I just have a soft spot for sensitive men. I can't help it, you know? And so I think that that was part of the reason that without necessarily hearing too many details or this and the other, I was able to grasp like, oh, I get it. I get what you're saying. I understand, you know, and and so in that sense, I think I saw a lot of of some men that I know, you know, and so I think that that was part of the reason that I gravitated so strongly to his story. You like the masculine rugged poet? Yes, that's what this. Okay, I to me that I am put off by that persona, and that's who he is completely and totally. But I think the difference is too that I'm a woman, so I'm always going to respond to that differently. You know what I mean? I think I think it's yeah. I see it as like this just poser saying or <laughs> posing like Ethan Hawke in Tortured Poet Land. I'm like, are you? Well, I love Ethan Hawke. I know that's what we're getting down to. <laughs> I mean, but what Gen X woman didn't? What Gen Xer did not love Ethan Hawke? I, I <laughs> his he talks about. His these characters in his in his album, his tortured people asking heavy questions. Who are you? Where are you going? Where have you been? He does. He does. He does. I mean, I think any man in the room would just is just vomiting over their chair. Like, are you serious with this? Where are they going? It's asking you big questions. And the second song, I wanted to take you down into their to their pain, their blood. Their heritage, the hardworking, the rough hands, the cracked skin of those those blue-collared workers and the land that they'd fought for. Where were they now? I wanted to see them in the full light of day and bring them out to dawn. And you know, and, and, I, I, and you know I'm not joking. You, you cannot disagree that what I'm doing is not even an exaggeration. No, no, no. That's what he says. That's what he says. Page 222, at the very end. At record's end, our lovers from Thunder Road have had their early hard-won optimism severely tested by the streets of my noir city. They're left in fate's hands in a land where ambivalence reigns and tomorrow is unknown. And these songs were the beginnings of the characters whose lives I would trace with my work. Along with the questions I've been writing about, I want to know if love is real. It's... (laughs) 
I mean, I had to put the book down. I couldn't. Small doses, ma'am. <laughs> no, he lays it on. He lays it on pretty thickly. I will agree. <laughs> I can see why women like it. If that's what the thing is, because he lays it on. And oh man! But you, you know, know what's like, interesting, Christian? Macaroni and cheese. It's got like all twenty six cheeses in it. <laughs> that is his mac and cheese, boy. Yes, but you know what's interesting, Christian? I will tell you this. I will tell you this. The interesting thing is that I am surprised at the fact that I also respond. Okay, you know, really, I'm I'm being completely honest and candid with you here. I'm also surprised that I responded as strongly as I did because I noticed the cheese. I noticed the laying it on thick. I noticed it. Totally. And I noticed that too. And as someone who is repulsed by people who lay it on too thick, especially men when they lay it on too thick, towards women. And it's just, oh, that's like the biggest turnoff. But somehow reading this book, it worked for me, which was surprising to me in some ways as well. Oh, wow. Okay. And it worked because I felt, and I I think part of it too was because I felt that some of the things that he said were spot on. I think when he talks, you know, I come from a blue collar family. And so I think he, like, there were some things that he talks about, you know, about the working class folks, which is where my roots are also, that's, those are my roots. And I felt he knew what he was talking about. Like he was not BSing any of that. You know, he really, he really knew what he was talking about because he came from that. And so I felt that that, that to me felt authentic. That to me felt like, no, that's, that is what it's like. You know, that is what it's like when you come from a blue collar family. There were some things to it that just really resonated with me too. Let's say all of that is true. It's a pop song. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Are you kidding me with this? Correct. It's a C chord, a G chord, a D chord, and you're selling T-shirts out front. Who do you think you are? We're right back to my central position. Here, here are more. Here, I mean, there are too many to go through, but there are a couple paragraphs. I mean, I just couldn't. I have to share, Martha. Page 266, you ready? Mm-hmm. What kind of, I think this is like a, a Havarti cheese he went for in this paragraph. Darkness on the edge of town was my samurai record, all stripped <laughs> down for fighting. My protagonists in these songs had to divest themselves of all that was unnecessary to survive. Unborn to run, a personal battle. <laughs> You're reading of this. <laughs> this is how, how else can you read it? But the collective war continued. On darkness, the political implications of our lives I was writing about began to come to the fore, and I searched for a music that could contain them. I can't, at Martha, <laughs> I can't handle it. I you detri- know- <laughs> I, hold on a little bit more, please. You got it. If you if you indulge this guy, you got to indulge me. Yes, I determined yes, that there on the streets of my hometown was the beginning of my purpose, my reason, my passion. Along with Catholicism in my family's neighborhood experience, I found my other Genesis piece, the beginning of my song, home, roots, blood, community, responsibility, stay hard, stay hungry, stay alive. Had you yes. not noticed that all of the sentences were written in that same roots, blood, yes, bones, yes, I dirt, did, 
I do. Life, ashes, meaning death, sex, rock I, and roll. I do. Bring it, passion, no passion. Up, down, left, right. Soy sauce, salt, pepper. <laughs> you know I'm not exaggerating. Not he did not say soy yeah. sauce, salt, Lennon, and pepper. McCartney. <laughs> Condo, Pinecola, Cher, Sky, Cumulus, Cloud, Desert, Sand, Monster Drink, Gatorade. Stop it. He did not say that. That's how he wrote. And I don't know if you noticed, Martha, but I did because I had, you know, I was, he also had this habit of the great drama of the ellipses. Oh, yes. And all caps. And all caps. (laughs) Okay. Martha, I thought I'd treat my readers. To, I was going to count all the times he used ellipses and not to be a snob, but if you don't know what ellipses are, I think our fans do because they're readers as well. Yes. Ellipses are the three dots, the sequence of you write a sentence like I opened the door and then I saw dot, dot. <laughs> he does my do best friend in he bed does. with my wife. He did not see that, though. That was not that was not that was not included in the book. Yes, I can only. I lost the ability to count. I counted. I I, I counted two hundred and seventy-five <laughs> uses of the ellipses. I can't By believe page, he actually counted. I had them. to quit. That's only at page two hundred and sixty-seven. I said oh, I can't do man. this anymore. Oh, I man. can't keep counting the ellipses. This guy keeps using. Well, I have to say that over yes, and over. You know what, though, Christian? Look, and I, over and over. <laughs> dot dot dot. Pain, suffering, death, divorce, love, Genesis, seven days, divorce, passion, community, family tree, rock and roll, big Exactly. Here's how you write a Bruce Springsteen book. You just throw in some ellipses. All caps and lots of exclamation points. Yeah, you capital. Yeah, y'all got to capitalize words. You got to use the word. Bones, blood, <laughs> thunder, <laughs> desert, and the desert. desert. Oh, and I'm glad you brought that up since we might as well. No, no, hold on. Though. I want to say something. I want to say Go something. Go ahead. So I know, I know that as even though, listen, everything <laughs> yeah. you're saying, Christian, I don't disagree with. You're absolutely right. But I still loved it. And I have to tell you something. Even though, even though he does, um, Basically, basically every story or rather every every song that he's ever written essentially has the same themes, right? It's not they're not that different. And even though, uh, yes, a lot of it, I was just like, oh, my gosh, this song just sounds like the last one he talked about (laughs) in terms of of the story. But you know what I really appreciated about his book, Christian? (laughs) <laughs> that oftentimes, oftentimes when we've read these books, they tell us about uh, the instruments, right? Like, oh, and then I got the guitar and I made this sound or I did this oh, yeah. note and I did this. And they that and that always that always kind of bores me. I don't want to oh, hear about sure. it bores me. I just I don't I don't care. It's like, you know, like I don't watch cooking shows because I love to eat and I prefer to eat than watch someone cook. Like, I just want, if I'm not going to be able to eat what you're cooking, I don't want to see it, you know? So I don't watch cooking shows. I'm not a fan. Um, but the thing, and so that's how I feel about music. I don't want you to tell me everything about the, I just want to know about the song and, and and just tell me the story. But in this case, 
I liked knowing sort of what he was thinking and the and this background to the actual lyrics and the actual songs. And I appreciated that he wasn't giving us like, and then we sat down and then, you know, I, we, we jammed for like, yeah, yeah. Like, so it was, it was different. And I think because of that, I didn't mind it so much, but no, yes. I mean, basically every song is essentially the same story with different characters. (laughs) I can't, I can't, I'm not, look, I could be here all day long doing this stuff, but I got to read a little bit more. Okay. You ready? Yes. The twin issues of love and identity form the core of tunnel of love, but time is tunnels unofficial subtext in this life and there is only one you make your choices you take your stand and you awaken from your youthful spell of immortality and its eternal present you walk away from the netherland of adolescence you name the things beyond your work that will give your life its context meaning dot 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 and <laughs> And the clock starts. You walk now, not just at your partner's side, but alongside your own mortal self. You fight to hold on to your newfound blessings while confronting your nihilism, your destructive desire to leave it all in ruins. The struggle to uncover who I was and to reach an uneasy peace with time and death itself is at the heart of a pop album, Martha, called <laughs> Tunnel of Love. I mean, what are you? But, but, but you know what, Christian? I have to tell you something. I have to admit something to you right now and to our listeners. And can it be as, as naked as this admission? I hope so. <laughs> well, I don't think so. I don't think anything <laughs> can be quite. Can. I don't think anybody or anything can be <laughs> quite this naked. But I will say this. That I've never necessarily been curious about uh, Bruce Springsteen's music. Yeah, and but and now I kind of want to hear some of these songs. I really do. Yeah, I, I really do. I understand because they will explain the mystery of the cosmos and how we got here. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll unlock the hidden meaning and feelings of your own family truth, our truth, our meaning, our blood. Yes, yes. It'll the give up, me all the, the down, answers. The, yin, the, yang, the It'll the give door, me the answers to life. The handle, the left hand, the right hand, the hot water, the, the cold water, the mixture, the pain. All the things we don't face in our lives, the demons, the truth. And that was at the heart of my 34th episode with Martha as we talked about this. <laughs> but you know, but you know, you know what? I want the next restaurant I go to, I want the menu to not say Reuben sandwich. I wanted to say the blood, the tears, the life, the pain. <laughs> of, of the people all making served, the sandwich. <laughs> all served on squaw bread. <laughs> But you know, I love and heartache and divorce. But you know what? I I have to again. I loved hearing. I loved reading all of that as much as I sometimes. Again, it was like here we go with the same song. (laughs) You know, I will say this, Christian. (laughs) I love it when even even if I find it humorous, I love it when people take themselves so seriously that it's like wow, that's amazing. (laughs) 
Whoa, and I you're... loved, I loved that everything was at that level. And, it I, sure was. and I loved that he had no qualms about letting us in. Man. You know, I'm an intense person. I have an intense personality. And and often I feel You thought you were. <laughs> true, true. But here's the thing. And as I was reading this, I was like, I will never publish any of my journals and diaries because people will probably have the same reaction that I'm having as I read this. Some people may love it, but they're going to be like, boy, she was really, really (laughs) self-centered. Morrissey's got competition on his hands. He never could have imagined it. It's in the shape of Bruce Springsteen. But I still loved it. I still loved it. And you know what? I, and, and you know what? We're ta- you talked about his relationships and that he never really gives us a whole lot of, uh, a lot of detail. With one exception, Christian, his father. He okay. does let us into that relationship. He I does felt. a little bit. There is he a touching does. story. Yes. There is a very touching story. Uh, but, you know, from the very beginning, he talks about the relationship with his dad. And even as a child, it was it was strained. You know, he talks about how his dad almost saw him as competition, being the only other male in the household. So there was always some level of friction. And, you know, it was interesting because to me, that story, again, is a universal story. How many times have we read about this, Christian? And it makes me wonder if this is something that's just, you know, a, a male story. I mean, I know obviously it women is, have, is I, I think women one. also have, you know, I think for some women there's conflict with their mother and that relationship. But I think that with men, it's different because, you know, as we've talked about before, I think with men, they sometimes have a difficult time opening up and, and talking about feelings and talking about the root of what's really at the center of what's happening in their relationship and how they're unable to really come together. And so he does, I felt that he really did, um, you know, I thought that he, that he treated that relationship and what he told us anyway, in a respectful way towards his dad, because there there are, and I, and I like the way he handled that because I think when people have had strained relationships with their parents, it can be very easy to bat mouth them and to just really rip them apart. But I think in his book, he really shows kindness and, and I appreciated that. I appreciated that a lot. He's very forgiving. I actually, until you said it, I hadn't occurred to me. He is a, he seems like a overall kind person. Yes. Uh, a, a overall rounded individual. Yes. Not full about his things and not full of bitterness or anger or pettiness. No. Or, that is true. And the story he tells about his father, I did think it was well-written. I did too. That entire chapter about his dad towards the end was just very moving to me. I was crying. It moved me very much. You know much. what? There, there's a, after we're done, there's a, uh, actually, I'll just tell you, there's a, I, I really think he is the Sean Penn of music. And, and while it, here's, here's the, here's the rub though. I, obviously I'm saying that in a, a pejorative insulting way. At the same time, I, I'm the first to tell you Sean Penn is a, one of the greatest actors ever. You just can't take away the fact that the dude, it, when he does his thing and he's on point, it, he hits levels and depths that are, are uh, breathtaking and they're so painful and rich and deep and, and and amazing. He has a movie called The Indian Runner that he directed. I highly recommend. And mm. it's very Bruce Springsteen-esque, even in terms of the setting, the blue collaredness, and and the story. Even he tells of what his how his father behaved and how the closing story that's very moving is his father. I, I think drives from what is it San Mateo? Yes, he drives like five. Yes, from San Mateo. Yeah, it's super 
you know, I'll just relate it to you. It's a very touching story. He drives tons of hours. He knocks on Bruce's son's door just to say, after Bruce Springsteen has purchased, you know, I'm sure spent tons of money on his parents. Right. Which I, again, responded to and appreciated because he, d- he did downplay that. He, d- he downplayed Yes. Yes, he did. And I appreciated that, too. You only come to the conclusion that he did that through his parents' language. And his Correct. father drives all the way there to say, Bruce, you've been very good to us. And, and I did respect. It was very modest. He wrote, I acknowledged that I had. I thought that was actually yes. a very moving way of writing it. Yes. I felt I similarly. Yes. Pause. His eyes drifted out over the Los Angeles haze. He continued, and I wasn't very good to you. A small silence caught us. You did the best you could, I said. And I, it was very, it was very, how could you not be affected by that? Yes. It was a crystallized uber father-son moment with... Totally. It was so moving. Super Hemingway-esque in that men communicate very infrequently, you know, in words. It's so unfortunate. It's so, I don't understand. Like I've said in all of our other episodes, I don't get it. Well, you know, I think we could go into that separate, but you know, they are, they, they, they they do understand one another. They do. So here's my point in the Sean Penn movie, the Charles Bronson calls his son and it's, it's the, he, he, 10 minutes later, 10 minutes after he makes the phone call to his son, he kills himself. Of course, the son doesn't know that. And he calls his son just to say, there's a piece of, on your deck, there's this piece of wood that you really should hammer down. It could, oh, that's such a dad thing. You could trip on it and you could oh, hurt yourself. And it's incredibly moving. Yes. And the son is like, oh, okay, dad. And this, it's actually very, it's, I love the film. Um, it's very moving, beautiful film. And the whole time the father is saying this to his son, this random, your deck is, He's, his son doesn't know, but he's watching, he's watching old footage, old movie, eight, you know, eight millimeter movies of his children when they were young. Ah. <laughs> and then the next day, the same son, the, the, he wakes up to knock on the door and there's a police officer saying, and, and the guy's like, why are you at my door at eight in the morning? Why are you giving this all away? No, I'm not. I want to watch it now. It's all ruined. <laughs> he says your, your daddy shot himself last. Time. Oh, my God, Christian. And in that moment, me? he figures out why his father what meant by saying that piece of floorboard was loose. Oh, my gosh. I love I, you. And I can't. <laughs> I can't. I'm getting teary eyed. I can't. Ah. Yeah. So Bruce is that. Look, he definitely is that kind of man, you know, and it's here. And it's well, it's well wrought, it's well written, and the book was definitely well written. There definitely, as much as I laughed and made fun of, no, it's very well written. It's very well written. In fact, there's a sentence I was like, "Ooh, God, that sentence is is ooh gorgeous," um, and Which... it's right in front of me. It's on the same page about his father, page four thirteen. Oh my God! Stop! I I I I cried. We honor our. Oh, parents. I'm gonna cry. Yeah, I know. It's it's even I was. It stopped me because I was like, oh. that is insightful. It really is insightful, and it's. I think that's all you can aspire to. We honor our parents by carrying their best forward and laying the rest down. And I just thought, uh, oh well. Oh, I'm crying. <laughs> no, I am because I. Oh. It's good. It's it, it, you know that that portion. That's was, it. That is it. That is it. It is a beautiful page. It is a beautiful page. That is it. That is like 
uh, when I think of my parents, that's what I think of. Oh, I'm going to cry. I'm, I don't care. I don't care. Because that that sentence really, really moved me. Like, it, as a father, it. personally, as I'm doing, as I think about my own relationship, my dad who doesn't talk to me, hasn't talked to me in a decade. And I still know that the best parts of him are what I carry and bring to my son. You know, and that it, so that he definitely look there. If you think of this, uh, thing, I think Bruce Springsteen would approve with, with the analogy because he's so, you know, like uh, uh, Peter Seeger, you know, this land is your land, you know, the mining for gold, gold panning of the 1940s, whatever John Steinbeckian era was it 1890s, whatever. Right. The, you, you do come across threads of gold in the book in terms of the sentences he writes and so forth. It's, yes, I mean, th those parts are just, uh, yes, there were some sentences and the chapter about his dad, oh, I was, oh, <laughs> oh, I loved it. Yeah, okay. I loved that chapter about his dad. Like, I did too. Just, it's so, it just, it moved me. And, and, and that sentence you just read, oh my gosh, I was, I was, was waterworks. I just could not keep it together. It's rhythmic. It's because, all we can do yes, if we're lucky. I'm yes. Lucky. And you, wife, yeah, it's all very rhythmic. Here are phrases from the book, okay? Hmm. The straight face. Yes. Page 275. The river would be my first album where love, marriage, and family would cautiously move to center stage. Here we go. Ready? This is when... Yes. <laughs> this is when I felt the, the first inklings of Art Garfunkel wrapping <laughs> oh, the tendrils no. of his curly afro oh, around no. my face. Oh, no. Okay? Roulette. <laughs> Roulette, a portrait of a family man caught in the shadow of the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. Martha, I think yes. I've said this before. This is a three and a half minute pop song, okay? And with a straight face, he thinks he's going to bring to light as the poet of our times, the troubles of... But, you know, Christian, to his defense, What's I will that? say this. To his defense, I will say that. Think about, think about two-minute songs that just do it for you. I don't care. I don't need... I don't want some to be lectured on the current politics of... <laughs> no, I understand. I understand. But I feel like for some people, or at least the people that are fans of his music, I'm sure that that's the effect that they have. And I think hearing sort of the... Hearing oh, the, the, the story behind it, you know, I think it gives it more meaning, perhaps. No, this is why... Okay, I'm glad... This is the rub for me. It's like, who... Is it your, you've anointed yourself as, as what? The interpreter of our times? And and, <laughs> and then after that, the book then it escalates in its egotism. Because after that, he then starts naming songs called, he calls the promised land. And then oh, right. land of hopes and dreams. With yes. a straight face, he starts talking about the diaspora of immigrants in our country and giving voice to these unspoken voices from beyond the grave and can't speak anymore, but they need to be heard. And uh, are you joking? You right. just took a, right. a private jet airplane out of LA because a Northridge earthquake was too much for you to take. And you were able to call Tommy Matola on the phone. Well, it was his wife. It was his wife who wanted to so leave. So capitulated. <laughs> well, he could have said, yeah. honey, no, these are the dr Dustin dreams of earthquake. <laughs> we need to beat Sean Penn wouldn't have left. 
<laughs> a shotgun would have been there for every size, but Tremor, but not Bruce Springsteen. He got on that plane and he got out his pen and. Hey, well, listen, that that earthquake was pretty scary. If I would have had access to a private jet, I would have left too. remember that earthquake. That was a scary earthquake. <laughs> he decides he needs I don't to blame his wife for why to leave. Pop song about the cops shooting some uh, a, a black man who, of course, they, you know, as as unfortunately happens, we've all seen 46 shots. Police officers shoot this guy who's black. And I guess he didn't have a gun. Just you know, it's just one of those tragic stories. But but Bruce needs to sing about it, and he calls it forty six shots, and he plays it at concerts, and he talks about the divisive way that it splits the crowd. And but he needs to tell the story of how these forty six shots represent the degree of the distance between us and our distrust and race. And it's like I know. Are you serious? Do you think you're Martin Luther King? Do you just change hats? I don't understand if you do you understand who you are? Uh, who, who told you? Then the next song, he, he he's then Martha. I know you had this moment, but you know, but you know what? Going back to that, I think that for all, but you know what though, Christian, that's just it. I think that for a lot of singers, they end up taking that as as their thing. I mean, Bono's another one. You know, I think that for a lot of yes. them, they, I think that for a lot of singers, um, they get to a point where. I feel they they start getting so much notoriety and they become so much bigger than I think they ever imagined they would get, even in their wildest dreams, that there is a level that I think that it becomes so, so much bigger than anything they probably ever dreamt of or imagined that they start walking on air a little bit, you know, and, and I do... And, uh, yeah, a lot, you know, and I think that that for him, um, that might be part of it, too. You know, and again, that's what I said in terms of his, you know, there are those instances throughout the book where his ego it is at full fledged, like it is shining with bright lights, like, you know, it's there. It's full Garfunkel. Uh, yes, I and I do agree with that. I um. But, you know, again, he was honest about it. He doesn't, he just, he talks about it with a straight face because I do think that he truly believes all of this to be his cause, to be his thing. He calls it his, he, he even writes, it was my job. Right. No, no, actually, you're just in the bar band. And even by your own self-description, you've just got a very famous bar band. Yes, he does say that. He does say that. Okay, the, the portion of the book where I thought you eclipsed, as I said from the beginning, you, you eclipsed Mark Garfunkel. And it and only you can have this experience with me because, you know, as we've read a couple of books, and Sebastian Box is one of them, where uh, they, <laughs> they have a chapter devoted to 9-11, like, it, like it's something you don't know about. Oh, right, yeah. So, well, Bruce Springsteen does the same. After his chapter about 49 shots and racial issues and how, he, of course, he needed to confront them head on, he then lets us into 9-11. And, of course, as 9-11 happens, with a straight face, he says he goes down to the ocean and he's taking it all in. And somebody's driving down the street and they see Bruce Springsteen and they stop the car. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're going to say. I have to admit, even even I was like, mm. 
<laughs> you know how you and I have certain phrases we'll never forget, like that's bands for you and Paul and Johnny. Right, right, right. Oh, Bruce Springsteen has his own. With a straight face, he tells us that somebody pulled their car over on 9-11. They rolled down the window. They saw Bruce Springsteen and shouted out loud to him, Bruce, we need you. <laughs> right. Right. I couldn't believe he had the audacity to even share that with Oh, God. Christian, I have to admit something to you. When I read that, I thought to myself, I wouldn't have written that in the book. Yeah, like there's a <laughs> bat signal, except it says Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band. Yeah, Where are you? We need you to take the stage to give us strength during this hard time. We need your rock and roll to fuse together our shattered limbs, our dust, our blood, our passions, our family tree, our... I, Bruce, we need you. Where are you? This wouldn't have happened, Bruce, if you had been on point, been on watch. And then, of course, he writes songs about this. He uses the phrase at some point, Palestinian, when he's talking about, he wrote, he writes a song with a straight verse where he imagines a suicide bomber and what that Palestinian feels like to wake up in heaven. And, and I'm thinking, you have so far lost the plot. No one around you has told you where Earth is anymore. And you are so inside, you're living inside your navel. And you, you have left Morrissey so far. And I never thought that could happen. You know what What I think, uh, I, I was trying, I try to understand as we're reading these books, I always try to get in their heads. Luckily, in this case, I was given that access and I didn't have to figure it out. <laughs> but I think, you know, I'm always, I'm always trying to determine or figure out what is it, what exactly is it that... Um, Produces the psychology? Right, correct. You know, what is it that produces this big sense of self, right? And I think, you know, I think to some extent, each one of us has ego. I think we all do. Um, but certainly, you know, I think for the most part, we... We keep that in check because other people in our lives maybe tell us to as well. But just, you know, in general, you you just kind of keep things in check and 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 all of that. But I think with with these folks, um, I think some of it might have to do also with the circumstances that they found themselves in before they reached these heights of success. You know, like in his case, he, you know, he like many others, he was homeless at one point. Um, he had no money. You know, he talks about when he first, he was recording his first album, he slept in a sleeping bag in a friend's apartment. Um, he tells us that it wasn't until like 1982 that he finally, act, you know, started seeing money up until that point he was broke. So I think that as things start happening for them, um, even though he talks a lot about, you know, his roots and he never really quite forgets them. I think that the that the more you become successful, I imagine, um, and as deep-rooted as you might be in your past, or as you'd like to be, or as you'd like to think you are, you know, I, I can't imagine that you would start separating yourself a little bit away from that, right? And then you add to that the fact that you have perhaps a lot of yes people around you. Uh, you have fans that are adoring you. You have everyone telling you you're amazing. I think it gets to the point where you almost feel invincible and you feel that nothing can touch you and that you can do everything. And so I think that in his case and in the case of others, that's where all of this comes in, Christian. I think that it's, um, you know, they feel that they have anointed themselves as the spokespeople for those who are voiceless. So. And I think, and I think that whether or not 
the people and the rest of the world thinks that or not, um, it's, it's irrelevant because the people that they're surrounded with, their circle, their universe, everything that surrounds them and everything that they float around is telling them otherwise. So regardless of whatever, whatever millions of other people who are not necessarily his fans, who are not necessarily working for him, and think about it, if you're working for someone that rich, that powerful, you know, you're probably going to go along with whatever they're saying because that's your paycheck, right? That's your, and, and so, and so I think that they really distance themselves from reality and it's easy for them to then say these things without even a hint of irony, Not you a know, hint on the horizon. No, I think that it's easy for them to just say this with a straight face. Whereas we're just like, ouch, that's a bit much, you know, but for them, because they're in it, yeah. they don't even, they're just like unfazed by it. They're and just, Taking pictures of Barack Obama and thinking, yeah. Well, they're unfazed by it because that's, that's their, that's their reality. It's not our reality. And we can be a little bit more objective because we're so distanced from it. But, you know, I mean, think about it. I think that if I were to have adoring fans always telling me that I'm amazing, I don't think that at any point I'd start thinking, well, I would like to think that I'd be like, well, I'm not that great. But if I have so many people telling me all the time, even the most humble part of you is going to start believing it. There's a, a, I couldn't believe it. This is when I knew he, he had just checked out from reality. He tells us he's writing the songs about racial problems and 49 shots. And then he's telling us about 9-11. Then he moves on to songs about Palestinians. Then he writes an album involving the Iraq war and Bush years. Cause that's a pop, you know, an album I really can't wait to go get. And then he decides to get involved musically with wall street. A guy just chases whatever narrative is thrown his way and decides, right. Oh, I need to investigate it. And with a straight face after releasing one of these albums having to do with, <laughs> oh, sets, I know, I know. He actually writes the phrase. He was surprised the album met with a lot less fanfare <laughs> than I thought yes. it was. Yeah. Really? You, you didn't understand why I couldn't tune into your mumbling over two chords and your political beliefs or, or uh, your antagonism towards whatever political power is in charge right now. I just want to hear a chorus that has a hook, dude. Can't you just entertain me and write a song? Can we just go back to dancing in the dark? That was fun. And you know what? It was so great about this. It's like, didn't you understand from the beginning? Every single person in the world, everyone, Never understood the point, the true point of your song, Born in the USA. We all thought it was just sort of a catchy, cool song. Nobody listened to the lyrics and realized it was a deep discussion of Vietnam vets who, upon the return. Oh, right. And he talks about that. He talks about it was the, one of his most misunderstood songs. It's Even I know the story of how it's a misunderstood. There's so many famous rock and roll songs that are where the authors, are, you know, are ask the audience have you ever listened to the lyrics because you seem to misunderstand the point like for instance you two's one apparently it's been played at weddings across the planet but oh. mono's like have you ever listened to the lyrics it's about the opposite of that well i think point, but this is my point it's like don't you're not understanding the place that music takes people's lives it's about the music and some kind of magical feeling it's not about these ridiculous lyrics or the sense of whatever it was inspired you to create the thing, great, kudos. But that's not necessarily what moved people. And what, well, what it's not what the audience is responding to. I punt sugar, sugar, do, 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 uh, honey, honey. There is not an ounce of anything serious in that. I would rather listen to that song for the rest of my life than any of, of Bruce Springsteen's deep thoughts about politics in any of his albums that he's just talking about is surprised 
but no one's buying them. And, you know, interestingly enough, the, the, the irony in that is the fact that later on, um, he talks about how for people, music is an escape. Yes. Muse, and he talks about how, you know, when someone goes to see someone live, and obviously, Christian, you and I experience this twofold in the sense that we love music and we love being in a concert and being there and experiencing the music live, the music that we love live. Um, and he talks about that, you know, which is, is the irony in all of this yes. because he talks about how for people, they just want to escape. They want to commune with the, with the band and the music and, you know, sort of reach this level of, he doesn't say this, but essentially this level of Nirvana where you're just like, Oh my gosh, this is the, this is what life is about. You know, at this moment, and, and he doesn't realize that everything that he is saying um, is contradictory to yes. that. You know, so that was, I found that to be very interesting because on the one hand, he gives us all this insight, which again, I did appreciate the insight into a lot of the, the songs, but by the same token, when he talks about sort of what the experience is meant to be, the musical experience is meant to be, it's far from what he's essentially, and, and at least at least in my own interpretation, you know, I feel like when I go listen or I see a live band, I, I want to, I'm there because of the way it makes me feel. And there's nothing that compares to that feeling. Right. Um, and, and he knows that too, you know? And so it was, it was interesting that, that he did that. And, you know, and going back to dancing in the dark, what was interesting about that too, was the fact that it was such a hit for him. Yes. Um, it was such a Forcibly. hit. I mean, that, yes. And that was another song. I think, you know, for anyone who wasn't, who wasn't around during that time and who didn't experience sort of this Bruce Springsteen mania, because it really was at one point in time, believe it or not, people who were really, I mean, he was really considered a big pop star. And, and he talks about that too, where, you know, it was with dancing in the dark that he was essentially, I mean, really it started kind of like with, um, born in the USA, but it was dancing in the dark that essentially catapulted him into the same arena as Michael Jackson, Madonna, Prince. And coincidentally, Prince's When Doves Cry was number one and his was number two. And so he talks about that too, because it just wasn't, you know, he never quite made it to number one. And just like others have talked about, he laments that, you know, the fact that this was sort of his biggest hit, the, the hit that made him a pop star, uh, but he never quite reached that number one slot in the charts. I love that detail because it really, I can, can't think of a more singular detail that brings the 80s to life. You've got <laughs> When Doves Cry is at number one. Totally. And Born in the USA. Or, I'm sorry, Dancing in the Dark, number two. I mean, that's, if, if you were there at all, I mean, no detail. It just brings, you could just add water to that little seed and the entire 80s is right there. Oh, man. Right? Right? It really is. I think it really, it really. Um, and that bandana, that video in Courtney Cox, right? You know. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, that was another interesting little note about that when he talks about how he thought she was just another fan. Yeah, I know. Courtney like Cox, that. and and that she was just and uh, honestly, I remember first wa when I first watched that video, I too thought that she had just been a girl that he pulled up from okay. the. And it wasn't until later that I found out that in fact, no, of course not. She was someone that you know had that they hired for that. But but yeah, you know the interesting thing, the interesting thing too, Christian, is that you have this. Um, uh, you know, you have Bruce Springsteen at number two, you know, dancing and being this rugged male, right? And then you have Prince, When Doves Cry, Naked in the Bathtub. That was so and with the, like, that was it was, 80s, yeah, was that total 
Totally, totally. Yeah. So when he mentions that, I right away I thought of the Prince video and I thought of the Dancing in the Dark video and I was just like, oh my gosh, you couldn't have had two polar opposites at that time. But again, like you said, that was the 80s. It was like this crazy juxtaposition of all these different people. If you think about that song, the apex of his pop success, Yes, and that song was written. Uh, if you if you want to call it this, but corporately, and as somebody said, we, we need a hit. We need a right. It was his manager, John Landau. Yes, yes. And he went off and sort of wrote that to command. And if you think about it, it's empty of any serious aspiration. And it was a good song. It's a great <laughs> set. I put it on. I listened to that album again. That's no, that's a, a good song. song. It's a good song. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I mean, it's got a catchy beat. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's and like, you know that's, what? that's, but what I'm saying is that feeling is so much more successful, unified and transcending right. and bringing people together. Right. And it's not a coincidence that the further you got from Dancing in the Dark, which is a great, cool pop little title, Dancing in the Dark, you know, you just spark a fire and it's, and just the fun of it all, the farther he got from that, it's like oppositely proportionate. You know what I mean? The farther he got right. from that, the, the, the further, the colder his career became. You, you can look at the images even on the album covers of those right? albums. He looks like he's in a frozen tundra, ice, <laughs> ice fishing for right. his bread and sustenance, barely trying to keep it alive. Well, yeah. I mean, you just told us you're a millionaire, billionaire at this point. You can't sell to me this John Steinbecking depression era crap anymore. Get back <laughs> on stage and tell me more about Dancing in the Dark with Courtney Cox. I'm on board with that, dude. Well, and the thing, too, was that, you know, I liked I really liked the story behind that song because it was him just being sick of everything. He was at a point where he was tired of everything. He just wanted to he just wanted to escape and he wanted to have fun. And that's how that song came about. And I thought, oh, go. my gosh, that I get it. You just want to have fun. I just want to dance. I get it. I want to dance all day. I want, I wish I didn't have to work. I could just dance all day and have fun. Of course. You Another know? song where you weren't trying hard and it came too quickly. And right. it was just this little, if you stop, if you stop constraining and pushing so hard, if you follow the analogy, then the thing will naturally come. You know what I mean? It'll produce itself. But the harder you, more strenuously you work at this thing, and I, you know what, Martha, I've, I'm sure you've noticed, the harder and harder and harder the writer of these books tries to persuade us of the seriousness of the thing they've produced. I know that's the least successful album you've ever liked. Oh, correct. I agree with that. Correct. There's an indirect proportionality to I agree more with you that. have to tell me how big this is, I know for sure this is your least successful, probably least interesting album ever. And it's been the case with everyone we've read about. Everyone we've read about. That's interesting because I did notice that and I do notice that in these books, especially as you get to the later part of their careers, in which case, you know, with him, as he starts getting more and more uh, writing about more uh, political and, and other topics, it the, the you know, the, the hits aren't quite there the way that they were. And, you know, I'm sure that fans will argue what these are some of his best albums. And I'm sure that to them, they might be. But in terms of that general uh, you know, people listening to it and knowing those songs. I mean, I couldn't name any song personally other than those hits, you know? And so I think that there is, there's, there's something very interesting about that. But, you know, I also think Christian, that the reason that that happens is because the more that they, that they move ahead, the more that they further their career, um, they don't need I, it. 
well, they don't need it, but I also think that to some degree they start feeling that they should get more serious. And I think that that's probably where the where the mistake uh, lies, you know, in the fact that they think that they have to get more serious. But overall, I mean, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. I want to qualify something you said because uh, it's you and I are trying to suggest, and I, I'm speaking for you because I think it's safe to say I can do that in this regard, that if something if something's not popular quote unquote therefore it wasn't good we're not that's not at all the thing no no not at all but 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 even and i'm quoting steven van sant actually he said something that stuck with me he said in an interview on the sopranos podcast and i it really was i really resonated with it he was talking about the 60s and why the 60s were such a magical golden period it's because in a true renaissance period and i think bruce springsteen even quotes him a Renaissance period means that the best art being produced is also the most popular art. When those two things come together, yes. that is beautiful harmony. That is how it's supposed to be, is that the most popular thing is also the most artistically perfect or best thing. Yes. When those two things come together, it really is wonderful. And so even though you and I, I'm sure, come across as snobs to the world at large, because we like things that are typically popular. In a perfect world, that is what the goal is and should be when those two things come together. And I think his career followed that trajectory. And his best music happened to also coincide with when it was popular. Correct. And I, yes, and I do think that that's, that's true. I think that I totally agree with what you said. It's not to say that things that aren't popular aren't good. Sometimes in some ways, they're even better. For sure. You know? For sure. Sometimes they're even better. But there is, a, there is a very unique time and place, you know, for music. And I think that what you just uh, said that uh, Steven, uh, Steve said, I think that that really is true. I think that there is... The reason that certain times in musical history are as magical as they have been is because you didn't have to search for that good music. It was yes. all it was all happening and you didn't have to go in search of it. Whereas now you have to search for it. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of music that's being produced. And, you know, I, re I read something recently that really stayed with me. And it talked about how now in the last year or so or in the last two years, not since COVID, but just generally speaking, over the last couple of years, older music um, has been taking over newer music. More people are listening to older music, and it's not just older it's people a, listening to it. It's, it's, it's yeah. younger people, right? Yeah. And I wasn't surprised either, Christian. Not necessarily because I have a bias for me old music that's older necessarily, but because nowadays you have to search for it. Listen, you and I listen to a lot of music. I listen to hours upon hours of music on a daily basis, <laughs> on a weekly basis. And I'm always on the hunt for something good. And I find it, you know, I do find it. But boy, in order for me to find what I consider to be a gem, I have to spend a lot of hours searching for it. Yeah. Whereas in the past, it wasn't like that. Think about the 50s, all of that amazing music that was coming out. On the, the radio. 60, on the radio. On the radio, you didn't have to search for it. And I think that's what we're saying when you say that. You know, that it's not necessarily that it's, that the music that isn't being played on the radio is, oh, it was worthless. No, it's not worthless. If it's giving someone pleasure, it, there's value to that. But you have to search for it. And I think he, when those songs came, when back in the USA, Dancing in the Dark, and those, those songs were hits, that was also a moment where there was so much richness 
and so much to choose from. And it was all coming at you at once. And that's just not the case anymore. And I think that sometimes those artists, they start thinking about it so seriously. And I feel they lose that magic touch to some degree. And I guess they start writing about politics. You know, I, I'm looking forward to the, uh, you know, to the musical he's going to write about the Black Lives Matter movement or whatever happens to be in popular culture at the time. And you know what? I got to say, this is the reason I turned on Bruce. I turned on him. Is I felt the last 100 pages, you and I have, have we've read so many of these books that you feel like you, you reach a point where, oh, I've made it to the end. And even the book might have 150 pages left to go. You're just treading water because, you know, right. this is where they're going to tell us, oh, I wrote this album, then I wrote that album. And then I, in, in his case, he does it. Oh, and then I was on the Super Bowl, you know, and he just starts just sort of coasting through these things. And and it's, when I got to that part of the Super Bowl, Martha, I, yes. thought, I thought, do you even like football, you know, Bruce Springsteen? Why Why does this matter to you? You just wasted my energy on the, with, you've told me how serious I need to be about the Iraq war and the Bush years and Palestine and 49 shots. And I could keep going with every single calamity of our political history. Suddenly the Super Bowl comes along though. Wow, all these super lights and pop, you know what I mean? This this empty, vapid world you want me to take seriously as being somehow the apex of your life on earth is you got to perform at this halftime for people for the, to me, the Super Bowl halftime is the emptiest of the empty. <laughs> it's the air of the, of the potato chip bag. That is what a Super Bowl halftime show is. And for you to present that chapter to us as if it's in fact the, the Mount Everest of your career made me think I, who who are you i can't rec- you want me to reconcile super bowl and i watched it after reading his book i watched all 13 minutes of his super bowl show and you're a grown man telling me to put down the guacamole i don't know if you've ever, you haven't watched it obviously otherwise you'd know that phrase he commands the viewers to put down the chip with the guacamole oh no i saw i saw him i saw his performance i've i've watched all the performances at super bowl yeah the super halftime halftime shows yeah you are basically telling us your Kim Kardashian moment. You just wanted me to take all of this stuff seriously, but now you're telling me about this Kim Kardashian moment with, with fireworks and you slid across the stage and crotch hit the camera. And I, I just thought, okay, yeah, yours, is, yours book is just, it's no different than any other book I've ever read. You're just well, you're coasting through the greatest hits of your life. And you're also following the narrative that other people have previously chosen for you. Because you would have been more impressive if he hadn't mentioned that at all. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. And I'm probably for the same reason. It's like, you're telling me Super Bowl meant that much to you in your entire life? Really? Right. Well, and he tells us why, because he tells us that at that point, he's really able to reach more people than he would typically oh, reach. Oh, boy. But beyond With that, you look- bar band music? Well, coincidentally, that was the catalyst for the book. It was after the, the Super Bowl halftime show uh, that he was in that that was sort of the catalyst for, for him writing his book, which, as he tells us, took him seven years to write. Do you want to know what was actually interesting about that chapter to me? There's a single yes. sentence. And I thought, this is interesting. Yes. Is Again, and I'll say it over and over and over again, and I think I'm speaking for you too, that I, to a certain extent, I will always, even if I make fun of these people, laugh at them and insult them, quite frankly, uh, they will always be a step. They, they have done something I never did. 
they just they just put their life full throttle. Absolutely. And you know, I, 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 that's why reading their book is you laid it all out there for better or worse. You succeeded. You made it. And I get to from my comfy chair read about your life and make fun of it or love it, whatever it is, whatever opinion I have. You will always have that over me, and I respect you for it. I will, you know what I mean? If push comes to shove, I'll always say, I respect Bruce Springsteen because he did something that most human beings can't do. So as to the, as to the Super Bowl story, yes, I am fascinated by the fact that I, I can't imagine the nerves required to get on that ridiculous Super Bowl halftime stage because now you're playing for the entire country. Okay. Like I don't watch the show, but most people do. And he tells us about performing at Super Bowl, which I don't know what that's like, even though he tells us who can possibly relate to that moment. But there's a detail he says at the end of the night, he's home alone. And his wife, he's just back at his house. And his wife is asleep and his kids are asleep. And he's just sitting by himself outside. He's outside on his porch alone, just sort of looking at the stars. Yes. And the contrast between those two, that to me was absolutely riveting. <laughs> Yes. Like, what is that like to go from only, let's say, 300 human beings on on our planet as we speak can understand what that experience is like? It's like Elon Musk taking people out to space, right? An hour ago, you were in space, and now you're just like the rest of us. You're at home. You've got your refrigerator with your food in it, and you've got your Netflix if you want to watch it. And that that detail was really fascinating to me because in a sense, these people are taking us to places you and I can't. This is what space looks like. So I hated the Super Bowl story, but I inadvertently loved it for that detail of like, well, now we're back on Earth again. Well, the normalcy, the normalcy, when I read that, I, I felt similarly. And I also felt similarly when he talks, you know, he's constantly on tour. I, I was really... um. I didn't know just how extensive his touring was, obviously not really knowing, you know, a whole lot about him, Uh, but he's always touring and he talks about that too, you know, how you're touring and obviously people are singing your songs and they're falling all over and fawning for you and loving you and, you know, all of those things. And when that ends, it must be so daunting, Christian, to go back to your home life if you are married and have children and all of these things and you're just another regular person who is being asked to take the trash out you know who's being asked i mean at this point you're not being catered to you know your yeah. wife and your children are like uh yeah whatever now can you take care of this for me you know and and that must just be such a difficult adjustment, even for someone who's been, yes, I mean, for someone, even for someone who's been doing it as long as they have, talk about just being completely, I mean, your world, I guess it goes 360 from one place to the other in a matter of an instant, right? And so that was also interesting to read about how how that affected him too, you know, how he has those lows and, you know, he, he talks about his depression. And so obviously when he has those lows, they're very, very low. Um, but it was interesting, you know, this, this, this picture he paints of all the fame and all this, and then the normalcy. And that's the one thing about these books that also always grabs me, you know, because then you think about them and you're like, oh my God, they're just like me. They're no different. (laughs) You know, the difference is that their job requires that they be in front of thousands of people every night. But when they come home, they're no different. They're dealing with the same BS that the rest of us deal with. So that's, that's very, um. 
interesting. He succeeded at, 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 at putting you in the in a conundrum of, like again, like I said, you're floating in space. You're at the the adrenaline rush times a million. Yes. And then having to go home. And I could actually, he succeeded at relating that story in a way that it was, it didn't, he didn't come across poorly at all. He made you actually um, relate to what it must, the frustration of somebody. <laughs> yes. If, if I got to just perform at the Super Bowl or, or whatever, you know, and I'm that famous and I'm operating at that level. And if I came home and somebody asked me to do a favor for them, I, could totally relate to my my first impulse would be to say how dare you <laughs> I, seriously i i think he 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 seemed to manage it fairly well and i did appreciate his honesty about what that's like because yes. there's no training manual for that you're a god for four hours and then somebody is like well now you're not and i would say excuse me i think i am right. i'll just get another wife if i feel like it well, parts of it I related to, the other parts I was just put off by. Like, I don't, <laughs> I really don't need your deep pol political music, Sean Penn. But, you know, I will say this. I think as much as, I, because again, I did, I really did love the book. Yes, there was a lot of uh, moments where I was just like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know? Uh, yes. But overall, I absolutely love the book. But you know where I thought it could have ended, quite frankly, okay. was after he brings the band back together. Probably. I felt like everything else was extra, even being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Even that, I was like, it's 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 now par for the course where I, I felt the time was right to bring the band back and to do it again. It's like, okay, whatever. You know, I your, your story sort of ended once you made it. I've noticed this, the, the, all of these people suffer from, not suffer from, because again, it's just, it's their story is the story of them making it. And then once you've made it, it's only going to go a variety of ways, but they're all sort of predictable after that. And so nobody's demanding the E Street Band comes back together. And you trying to sell me on its necessity is it's just not going to work for me. You know, um, I, I understand what your point is, but there are two. There were two other things, real quick, that I wanted to. This was the only book so far we've read, and I thought, oh, that I've and I remember thinking, oh wow, we've never encountered this before, where he discusses Vietnam. Right. Because he was of the age where he was drafted. He was. And what's interesting is the persona he projects is this very blue collar, hardworking American. But it, I don't know how to put it. He pretty much avoided the draft. Um, he did. And, yeah. And he didn't I, want to go. And he found a way to get out of get out of doing so. And he gives you a very funny list of the, the ways in which people had uh, contrived to get out of going to the draft, one of which I guess was filling out the application or form or whatever, and all this nonsensical, crazy language. Right. And he doesn't actually tell us how he, like what exact, what recipe of behavior or thoughts he melded together to get out of going. He just lets us know that it succeeded. Um, I wish he would have told us that though, because he's an interesting person that he comes across as being this blue collared American but uh, the other part of me is like, I don't know if Blue Collar America is so thrilled that you dodged the draft, dude. You know, it seemed he's, he, he's a mercurial figure in that regard because he is conjoined with this Blue Collar Americana, right? But then this right. other part seems to be just, just draft dodging, very liberal, if you will. And so he, he's an interesting persona. 
Well, he does. He does share that you know two of his friends were killed, and I think that that was part of the part of the reason too that he was um, not wanting to go. You know, and I can't imagine that you know the 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 men at that time. I, I can't imagine anyone being terribly eager to. No, they were, but they went. A lot of them went. They did. did. They did. did. They they didn't fill out crazy things on the. No, form. they didn't. They didn't. No, they didn't. Up, they didn't pretend to be homosexual, and I'm quoting him. They didn't do whatever it was that he that people you know came up with to do, but he did, and you know I I just thought that was interesting part of the book, but I, I didn't really bring too much judgment to it. More than that, I was just interested because it's the first time we've ever read about somebody who faced Vietnam, and so that was brand new to our you know you and I have been we're we're seasoned bros at this time, Martha. You know, <laughs> we've read so much rock and roll. But right. that, was, that was a new room. It was a new room. It, yes, it was because I don't think anyone up until this point has really talked about about that. Uh, right. But I think it was because he was also of, he's a, of a certain age, you know, where he, yeah. that would have been that would have been the case. But but yes, there was a variety of reasons that they used. You know, it was pretending that they had psychological problems pretending that they were gay and pretending that they had uh, medical problems. That and they just I guess a lot of them didn't wash either for like... Oh, right, right. Just so that they could they could think that there was something wrong with them and that they were just not of sound mind. And so they they drafted. And that was, that was interesting because... Um, We'd never yeah. read that before. Never read that before. One final little story I did like a lot. Um, it was a story about being... I think he's asked, oh, he's asked the Rolling Stones are on tour. Oh, correct. And they ask him because he's from New Jersey. You know, it just goes back to Mick Jagger being such an opportunist. They, since I guess their tour, they're going to, part of the tour, they're going to be in New Jersey or New York. They they reach out to Bruce Springsteen. They, like, let's bring him on stage for, I think it's Brown Sugar. Um, Can't recall, but yes. No, it wasn't Brown him, Sugar or something else. He, he, but he really, I really enjoyed the story he tells of going to the rehearsal. Yes. And he, I don't know why, he just succeeded really well at reducing himself to just being a fan again. And he shows up with just <laughs> yeah, his like guitar. That. And there's some secretary who recognizes him, but just says, yeah, go walk on and on through. And there inside are the Rolling Stones. And he does a really great job of describing how little gear they have and really describing the rolling stones as this true garage band rock and roll band yeah that's what he calls them he says that they're a garage band yeah and he's just like marveling that he's playing beside keith richards and 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 mick jagger and playing this song with them and what i loved about the story is that he says he then of course he goes on stage to play it with them in front of whatever stadium but he says it's playing that rehearsal, that that just fifteen minute rehearsal moment with the Rolling Stones, was that was what he would stuck with him. Yeah, that struck me. That was the memory, and that yeah. really that it was a very successful moment of of the book, and it brought to life that, of course, he's just a fan and passionate fan of rock and roll. And trust me, he goes to great lengths to extol how rock and roll has the power of like the gods and the religious cosmos to change the planet. Yes. But that moment was really, it really actually brought the Rolling Stones to life for me in a way that I've never thought about before. Right. I, I totally got that too, Christian. And, you know, I, I also loved, and it also struck me too, you know, that that was the highlight for him. It wasn't playing in front of the thousands right. of fans. It was being with them because he was so 
you know, for lack of a better word, starstruck, starstruck. He was just so, he couldn't believe it. And I think those were also some other parts of the book that I enjoyed where he talks about music and how much he loves it. You know, I loved him talking about like when he first sees the Beatles on TV and Elvis, but, but when he's talking about music and the power of music and what it does, I mean, you know, you, you, as people who love music, you just can't help but, but uh, relate to that enthusiasm and that love for it, you know, and he gets to do it for a living. So it must be, I can't even imagine what it means for him. You know, it means so much to me personally. I can't, I know how much I love it. I know how much, you know, we love it. So imagine actually doing that as the, for a living. Oh my gosh. I don't know. And to be anointed, to have the Rolling yes. Stones say, you know, there's a paragraph in the book where he talks about his voice and it's, you know, lack. Oh, right. Right. Lots of people don't like Bruce Springsteen because of singing voice. And right. obviously, fine, no one's going to argue that. But he talks, he gives a long, passionate discourse about what's really required is heart, blah, 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 blah. Yes. And even though I blah, blah, blah it just now, there must be some truth to that because the Rolling Stones are like, yeah, you're one of us. You're part of our tribe. It's, right. you're, it's you gave all of your blood for this. And maybe it's that sacrifice. Maybe if you sacrifice all of your blood, you get the thing. And other people who have similarly sacrificed their entire soul and blood. I, I'm starting to sound like Bruce Springsteen. Your blood, your dirt, <laughs> your grit, your teeth, yeah. your bones, your life, your family. <laughs> but they, the Rolling Stones are like, yeah, dude, you're... And that, that it, it worked for me. You felt like the little kid in him returned. And yes. You felt like suddenly this 16-year-old kid was walking through the room. Yes. And it did feel that it, way. It was really neat. It was a neat. It was. It was a nice moment. I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I like that. I liked him talking about his voice and recognizing that he doesn't have a great voice. But then by the same breath saying, that's why I made sure to make my strength, you know, in my music writing, in my playing of the, you know, he talks about like, I might not have had the best voice or I may not have the best voice, but I try to make up for it in these other areas. And you're just like, you know what? I mean, you, you cannot respect that, you know? So, so I, like I said, I really enjoyed this book. <laughs> I, I'm glad. I, well, I don't begrudge you, you know, that, that he does have that masculine rugged poet thing down. He's, you know, the Ethan Hawkeyan tribe. Yes. I think that's, I don't know. I respond to that. Even, even the say? way he talked about his relationship with his wife, we argued, we fought. She brought out the demons, we tamed them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that's a bit much for me personally. That Virgo, was a bit much. Saturn, Plato, the planets. <laughs> you see, that, that I'm not into. I am not into the fighting and the, uh, we are arguing and killing each other. I, I, and then she, she talks about how he talks about how his wife would throw stuff. I mean, I'm not into any of that. That I can subscribe to. I can subscribe to that. <laughs> It's so boring, you know. I can't subscribe to the violence. Not you know the, that kind of. Yeah, we I drew just, blood, but in the blood we found our love. Yeah, no, no, no. I we can't. washed ourselves in the truth of the feeling. Of the, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, All I right. can't. I can't with that. All right, can you? Is, you know what? The last thing I do want to say is the reason that doesn't work for me is like, give me Slash or Sebastian Bach any day. I would rather, you know, the, the infamous story you know I've read of Sebastian Bach going to kiss his uh, Ace Freely, and, and, he, and yeah. the great reveal is they just watch terrible pornography and do <laughs> right. together. I find that so much more sincere, and and I understand that. I, I understand would that. Give me that any 
day. I totally get it, Christian. It's like, do I really need to listen to you open your chapbook of poems and read them out loud? <laughs> Well, you see, that's the thing that would turn me off too. But I don't, I, you see, oh, I, I guess it doesn't. I am, I am, a, I am, I am a walking contradiction, Christian, because that kind of stuff. Like, for instance, if someone you know were to be like, I, I, I wrote all these poems, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, can we not do this right now? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't. I just would not be interested. That kind of stuff turns me off. I can't. I just it makes me want to puke. I, you know, but there, there's something about reading these things in this context that doesn't necessarily turn me off. If it was happening in real life, I might be turned off by it, if that makes any sense. Oh, I can't explain it. Like I said, I'm a walking contradiction. You know, I, I can't, like when he talks about how he, um, when he proposes to his wife and he gets a a branch or something and he turns it into a ring and he gets down on one knee. Oh my God, spare me. Gross. I can't. I I can't. Those things are just gross and corny and I I can't deal with that. But, but overall, I love the book. (laughs) After all that, after all that, I loved the book. I did. I loved it. I loved it. He moved me to tears. And if I'm moved to tears, that is something for me. So I loved it. So go read the book. I'm recommending the book. I know Christian isn't, but I am. <laughs> we need you. Bruce, we need you know what it reminds me of? What? Real quick. It's except this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Is Rocky I'm gonna make it quick. Rocky two, which is like Oh <laughs> Rocky two is as great, if not better, than Rocky One. Oh, Can I tell you why? It's great no, it's worse. No. <laughs> No, this, this is rock and roll. This, this, let me tell you some serious, Bruce Springsteen, if you're listening, and I know you are, this is real man blood. So, you know, he, he, Apollo Creed wants to fight Rocky again because everyone's like, Rocky should have won. Yes. And the whole movie, it's Rocky not fighting. Yes. Because his wife is like, no, because (laughs) his trainers, wonderful trainer, Mick is like that fight. You almost died. Right. It would have killed you. <laughs> yes. And the whole movie, he's like, I'm obedient to my wife. My wife says not to fight, not to fight. And I love my wife. And so it's a good man. That is a whoa. good man. <laughs> I haven't even told you the punchline of him getting chills. So the whole and he gets his and he's a failure at everything he tries. That's right. As That's is Rocky. Right. Yeah. But he still loves his wonderful, awesome wife, Adrian. And yes. then, of course, as she's giving birth, she has serious complications and she almost dies. Yes. And Rocky is praying in the chapel. He's praying. <laughs> I he's know. I've seen that movie. I know. Oh, it's so I, dramatic. You know it's coming, but I don't, don't so ruin it. Don't ruin no, it. Don't no, ruin no, it. No, 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 no. <laughs> I get chills to this day. To this day. And Apollo Creed is like, come on, fool. You're a coward. Fight me. Fight me. And he's like, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to fight you. And his wife is just in a coma and a coma and he's praying, he's praying in the chapel. And it's just the whole movie is like, what? There's no fight. Finally, finally, his wife wakes up (laughs) and she says something, but he can't hear. And he leans closer to her and she whispers in his ear. She says, fight. (laughs) Oh my God. It is. I got chills just saying it right now. Oh and man! So, and then the moment she says "fight," the music goes dun 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 
Dun, 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 dun. Oh, and then he starts training. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like the movie has pent you up for this for like an hour and 30 minutes of nothing happening. Suddenly you're released and Rocky is training hard. Oh, it's the greatest. That essentially is what Bruce, we need you. <laughs> oh, Bruce. Bruce. That's what I'm going to whisper to you from the rest of my life, Martha. <laughs> you know, apropos of nothing, I'm going to whisper in your ear. I'm going to go, Martha. You go, yeah. I go, <laughs> well, I loved the book. I needed this book. It made me cry. I felt a release. It was great. <laughs> I just, I, I'm going to go see Rocky too. There you go. You go watch Rocky. <laughs> That's right. Well, okay. This is another big one. Um, and the last thing I'll say to his credit, it must be hard for people at this fame and magnitude level to write a book. That's why I'm dreading reading Bob Dylan's. Oh my gosh. Well, it took him seven years to write this book, he tells us. And it's only like the first third of his life. And I can get that. It's like, he's such a legend. It's like, how do you even approach that? Right. Well, right. Bruce, Bruce did. He did. He approached us. And I thought he did a great job. Blood. I thought he did a great job. Yeah. And if you want to, if you're worried, if, you know what, if you have any fears at all in your life, you feel anxiety or stress, don't because Bruce is out there and he's got your back and he's got his six string, his six string guitar. He's got the truth. Yes. And he's going to save your life with his chords and the E Street Band. Well, this was exciting. Um, as always, we put another one down. Um, even Bruce was not too much for us. Yes, we did it. 500 pages of Bruce. Yeah. Like it's like I just one more mountain. We did. <laughs> we did. We're just, I'm, I, I, I'm starting, I'm starting to feel like Bruce Springsteen in terms of how many miles we've put on our bicycles as we just cycle. It's our been way a lot. America. It's been a lot. Yeah. And we're going to keep going because that's, that's what right. We'll, that's what we're going to do for our fans who need us. That's right. <laughs> They need us. Martha. Martha. Yes. They need us. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They do. They need us to turn the pages. They need us to scan the pages, read it, absorb. We don't scan. We read every last word and every last ellipsis and every last exclamation point at every period, everything. They need our highfalutin master's degrees. Oh, brother. <laughs> yeah. They need our ability to discern themes, you know, contents of, you know, central ideas. Yes. 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 Yeah. And we deliver as always. As always. As always. Well, it's been a delight. I look forward to joining you again um, uh, after we put Bruce down. There's, there's nothing we can't do. I'm assuming we're done now, Martha. We are. Then, speaking for myself, um, I thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening.